0: This podcast is brought to you by Sage Motion. Sage Motion enables movement training through wearable haptic feedback.
1: Sign up for a demo at sagemotion.com/demo and write boom in the comment box.
0: Welcome to episode 51 of Boom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Melissa and I'm Hannah. And today we're really excited to share an awesome interview with Professor Ashley Weaver, who is the Associate Professor of Biomedical Engineering at the Wake Forest School of Medicine. And in the episode, we learned about her research, which takes a combination of experimental and finite element modeling methods for tackling challenges like vehicle safety, osteoporosis and aging, and the effects of space on astronauts' musculoskeletal systems. She also shares insights from directing the RAU programs for undergraduate students and shares some really helpful mentoring tips that we think that you'll really learn from. We're so grateful for our listeners and we also wanted to give a special shout out.
1: Daniel Grindle.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That was very special. Thank you. <laughs> Daniel requested that we have an episode focused more on the computational side of biomechanics. So, this one's for you, Daniel. And if anyone else would like to request a person or topic for us to interview, please feel free to reach out to us on social media or on our website. And you Hannah, can have a shout out like that, yeah, too. You, <laughs> don't, you don't want to miss the opportunity to have such a special <gasps> shout out. <laughs> Before we jump into our interview, Hannah's going to share a bit of boom with us.
2: Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom.
1: As Melissa mentioned in the intro and as we'll talk about in our interview with Ashley, we really focus on the biomechanics of car crashes, which does feel sort of CSI-like, you know, like reverse engineering, how a car crash happened, trying to figure out how an injury happened. Yeah, Melissa has some personal experience working on the biomechanics side of this, not on, well, not on the, life, <laughs> the life
0: side. I haven't not been in a few car crashes. Luckily, all good, though. All, all good. Everyone on all sides have been safe in them.
1: Um, <laughs> Bless for that. But in our bit of boom, we'll focus on the biomechanics and the science side. And this bit of boom comes from a colleague of Ashley's, Professor Scott Gazek.
0: Yeah, and actually had the opportunity to work with Scott Gasek. So he was my mentor during my REU that we talk about a little bit. And he's fantastic, doing really good work, a really awesome person to work under. And he helped me write, actually,
1: my NSF fellowship. That's a big part of
0: why I am here with you, Hannah.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. So I can personally thank Scott Gasek for our friendship.
0: Everyone should thank Scott Gasek (laughs) for helping me write that fellowship because without it, I wouldn't be at Stanford if you've heard my previous yeah talks about (laughs) i rejected my rejection to stanford and yeah this fellowship helped me find my way here
1: i love that story so much it's incredible so thank you for for bringing it back yeah and thank you scott (laughs) thanks scott for really letting that story be a reality okay so scott's recent paper we're just buckle up pun intended, no. for this long title.
0: <laughs> wow, it's been a while since a good of pun, so thank you.
1: <laughs> oh, we needed to bring it back. So the title is Development and Implementation of a Time and Computationally Efficient Methodology for Reconstructing Real-World Crashes Using Finite Element Modeling to Improve Crash Injury Research Investigations. And despite it being a long title, (laughs) I feel like it really says it all. So that's kind of why I wanted to say it. It's published in Computer Methods and Biomechanics and Biomedical Engineering. And really, as you heard, it focuses on using finite element modeling to simulate these car crashes that actually happen in the real world. Mm Mm-hmm. Both the car dynamics, the body contact, so that we can reverse engineer injuries from these crashes and try to understand how they happened, what the forces actually were, and then what the actual result was. Like if someone broke their rib, their chest was compressed. Right.
0: So it's pretty neat because we had both the human body model that's inside of the car, finite element model, and you can even like we have the seatbelt going over the person, wow. so you can and you can define these contact between the person and the in the seatbelt and the car and all these different things. So there's a lot going on in the models. And, yeah, wow. It's really
1: interesting. <laughs> well, I think it was key. Melissa, thanks for explaining all that because I think it was key that they were trying to find a simple vehicle and body model that's still captured, you know, it's still accurate. Right, right. Um, it's that
0: trade-off between computational power and fidelity, right? Right.
1: It's impressive that they say this is a time-efficient model, you know, mm-hmm. more efficient than some previous models up to 50 times faster even than some previous models. Mm. And the reconstruction of the crashes still took five to six days.
0: Wow. (laughs) That's
1: wild. Yeah.
0: Maybe we should reevaluate (laughs) our baseline of like what's efficient in terms of doing work.
1: Well, I was talking to another friend who has worked in industry before, and she said, you know, that tolerances in in, industry are different than those in academia, which I'm sure you have seen too. And so, yeah, what – is relatively short or long time-wise, right. really different. So just for context, yeah, five to six days. But they had were able to simulate 11 frontal crashes reconstructed using their novel methodology. And what was cool is they simulated a variety of different crashes and really did a really nice demonstration proof of concept to show this method has good kinematic accuracy and can be used in future studies to help us understand different car crashes One interesting finding was that the shoulder belt, your seat belt, is generally Mm -hmm. the primary causative component of chest injury, which is known, but they were also able to discern different cases where The steering wheel airbag was crucial to generating rib strain specifically. So Mm. I think that was something interesting that you could really piece out these different causes of injury. Yeah,
0: that's not to say that you shouldn't be wearing your seatbelt, though. We should just highlight that. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like seeing crashes and the cool thing about being able to reconstruct these real life like simulations or real life crashes as simulations also helps us to design better.
1: Right. You can change a parameter and say, well, what if the person's seat had been, you know, one inch closer. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So everyone keep wearing your seatbelt out there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that boom with us.
1: Thanks to Scott for his paper and for connecting us to Melissa.
0: Yes. So, all right. Well, with that, let's jump into our interview with Ashley. All right. Today, we are really excited to be talking with Professor Ashley Weaver. Ashley is a professor of biomedical engineering at the Wake Forest School of Medicine. I actually had the opportunity to meet Ashley during my REU with the Center for Injury Biomechanics at Wake Forest. And I know that I wouldn't be here without you and without that program. So, I'm really excited to share your work. We've had requests to have more computational uh, work on the podcast. So we're excited to learn more about your experiences and the opportunities you're creating for undergraduate and graduate students. So thank you for being here.
2: Yeah, thank you for inviting me to be on. And it's good to see you again, Melissa, and to meet you, Anna.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's so great to meet you. And part of meeting you and part of meeting Boom is uh, getting to know you a little bit more and getting to know where, you know, it all began. So our first question is, when did you first know that you wanted to be a biomechanist?
2: Yeah, I think I knew in undergrad. I went to undergrad at NC State and did biomedical engineering, majored in biomedical engineering. And, you know, I had a biomechanics professor. His name was Peter Minty, but he was much more of a mentor than a mentee. Like he was... really fantastic. Like one of those teachers that you just could tell was, it was palpable how much he cared about teaching and Mm -hmm. like making sure students Mm -hmm. learned. And I took a biomechanics course with him and uh, something just sort of clicked. Like I knew that that was like what I was interested in sort of the direction that I wanted to take my biomedical engineering career. Um, and that motivated me to then look for biomechanics focused internships. It led me to apply for summer internships and eventually kind of set me on the path towards grad school and eventually like staying in academia as a faculty member, I would trace it all back to you know that that person that sort of sparked that initial interest in biomechanics for me.
0: Mm, that's amazing. And I feel like now you're kind of paying it forward and doing the same for other students, which is always really beautiful to see.
1: Yeah, that's the hope. Many recommendations from students about you. So we're so oh, excited really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: Oh, That's nice to hear.
0: So can you tell us a little bit more about some of the current projects going on in your lab?
2: Sure. Yeah. I have a lot of variety in the the things that I do. Um, I'd say it all falls under kind of the umbrella of injury biomechanics, but I I work in a lot of different application areas. I can tell you about sort of the three themes in the work that I do. The first one is is more automotive. And that's really what I started out in injury biomechanics doing was more automotive trauma research. Mm. We're part of a center called the Crash Injury Research and Engineering Network, SIREN. It's actually the project that I worked on as a summer student was a SIREN project. And so it sort of interested oh, wow. me in the field. Full circle, yeah. yeah. And so 15 years later, you know, the, the research is, is still going. But SIREN is a network of multiple centers across the U.S. that enroll seriously injured motor vehicle crash occupants. And we study how people get injured. And it's geared towards people that are driving more modern vehicles, like seven years or newer, and so the goal is to sort of understand like why serious injuries are still happening when people are driving the vehicles that have the latest safety technology. It's a really neat study. I, I always think of it as like CSI, but instead of crime <laughs>
1: crime scene, <laughs> and,
2: yeah. Instead of crime scene investigation, though, it's crash scene investigation. Um, oh, okay. I like that. It is that. CSI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's very much like that. It's kind of forensic in nature. We have a crash investigator that goes out and he collects evidence from the scene and he goes to the impound lot and he takes all these pictures of the vehicle and, and measurements. And, you know, he looks for blood marks and scuff marks and hair and tries to figure out like where you know, the person hit in the vehicle, like where their head hit, did it hit the roof side rail or the A pillar? Did they load the belt? Were they belted? Did the airbag deploy? So he collects all this like crash evidence. And then we have all the me- medical records and the radiology on the person. And we, ha- as engineers, along with the physicians that treated some of these patients sort of get together and put the pieces of the puzzle together and try and figure out what the mechanisms of the injuries were and what the cause Mm -hmm. of the injuries were. Yeah, all this data gets entered into a database and you can do research with it. And so we've, my group has done a lot of papers on different like epidemiology of injury studies, or we've analyzed the medical imaging from these patients to sort of link the injuries on the imaging to crash characteristics, or we've done finite element modeling reconstructions of crashes, to sort of simulate virtually what the crash looks like. Interesting.
0: And is this helpful for the doctors who are treating the patient and trying to figure out the mechanisms of their injury? Is it more from a legal standpoint? Is it designing cars better in the future? Where do you go after these types of analyses.
2: The studies sponsored by the Department of Transportation, I think their interest in it is like to try to understand what vehicle safety advancements still need to be made to protect people mm. better in crashes. And so while we're not like sort of directly designing the like new safety technology for vehicles, I feel like the data that we collect informs that and leads to those things. So, you know, some of the early data that like SIREN collected 10 or 15 years ago did point to like the need for say side airbags. I mean, they're just and not just siren, but like other data sets and stuff sort of pointed to this too. But that's the type of thing, like I think that sort of motivates automakers and motivates the field to move forward is collecting the data and sort of seeing what injuries are still happening.
0: Yeah. I worked at crash test safety at Toyota. I just, whenever I think about it, I just think of, um, well, we got to watch the crash test which was cool but i also think about the pedestrian tests where they basically like straight up shot like a dummy head like a cannonball <laughs> style at the front of a car and it's just like i don't know kind of traumatic i think to like think of that kind again. of um, <laughs> But anyway, um, but it's really, it's really interesting to hear all these different pieces that are part of it and the role that you play as a biomechanist in that. Mm -hmm. So that was the first sort of theme. What's the second theme of your research?
2: Yeah, the second theme is more osteoporosis and fracture prediction. You know, I got my start kind of in the trauma field, but I was always interested in orthopedics and I felt like there was more potential to sort of make a big public health impact with that research because there's so many individuals, you know, that are affected by osteoporosis and fractures are a big concern. If, the, if someone is older and they get a hip fracture, there's like a 20% risk of death in the next year following that hip fracture. I was interested in like ways that we could use sort of our computational tools, our medical imaging and finite element modeling to better predict which people are at risk for fracture and try to diagnose that earlier so that you could maybe intervene and prevent the fracture from happening in the first place. And so I'm, I'm working on a couple projects that use like subject-specific CT finite element modeling. So taking CT scans of participants and making finite element models of their bones and then predicting what the breaking strength of that bone is in like a virtual simulation. And we're doing a lot of that work in clinical trials. So we we'll enroll people in like weight loss trials. And weight loss is actually really controversial in older age because not only do people lose fat, which is good, but they lose bone and they lose muscle when they lose weight. And so we're testing out different interventions so that older adults can lose weight more safely, like without losing bone Wow! and using these modeling tools to predict and kind of assess the effectiveness of the intervention at different time points. You know, before the intervention and like six months after and like 18 months after the intervention. And we're testing different interventions. So it's like one of the projects is looking at a higher protein diet versus a lower protein diet. And our Mm. hypothesis is that like the higher protein diet will preserve more of the bone and the muscle and be a safer way to lose weight. And then we have another trial where we're testing resistance training, which we know resistance training is good for bones. And we're testing that against a weighted vest, which is this vest that the person (laughs) wears. And we add weight back to the vest as they lose body weight. And they wear it for like six to eight hours a day.
1: To maintain load.
2: Yeah, you're replacing their body weight. But for an older adult, the idea is that that may be easier for older adults to do because they don't have to go to a gym. They don't have to do this like scary resistance training that's, you know, is intimidating for some older adults and like is at risk of injuring them or they might be scared, you know, if they do the wrong thing that they could, they could injure themselves. So if we can find that like this weighted vest is as effective as resistance training, it may be a more translatable intervention Mm -hmm. to prescribe. You have to pair with Martha Hall,
0: who does fashion and biomechanics. So can make then, a- yeah, yeah. Make it, so then people want to wear
1: it even more yeah. because I actually yeah.
2: enjoy wearing it. Yeah,
1: it cool a- grandmas.
2: Yeah. It's not a very fashionable vest. So, yeah, just- <laughs> <It's> not <laughs> yet. Yeah. you add some glitter or some sparkles mm-hmm. to it or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what the bones need.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's awesome to see, um, uh, such great translation too of the work that you're mm-hmm. doing, you know, that's actually affecting people and helping them to be stronger and healthier and, and better. And especially at that time point where I feel like I have a soft spot for elderly people and just like I worked a lot with people with parkinsons in my phd and just I feel like I always wish there's more you know there was more we could offer them and give them
2: yeah parkinsons is actually like a condition too that's associated with a lot of osteoporosis like mm. early onset osteoporosis that makes sense hmm.
1: those were two Like incredible research themes that you've got that you're working on. And we also know that you're involved in some research regarding astronauts' physiological changes. We have a class on human biomechanics here. And I remember there's a muscle adaptation lecture that talks about, you know, time and space and the muscle atrophy that can happen during that time, but also it can happen in as little as like two weeks of bed rest. So it's applicable Mm -hmm. to a wide number of populations, not just astronauts. Yeah.
0: And so sad. (laughs) I feel like sometimes I find it so, like, I don't like to think about it. Like when I need a break or I injure myself, I'm like, oh, my muscles are just so quickly (laughs) (laughs) atrophying.
1: Spend eight hours sitting in a chair and you're like, oh, what did I do today? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, we're interested to kind of hear how you got into this niche, but really important and impactful field that is this a third theme also I don't It
2: know. is yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're <We're> not <laughs> you're not missing anything. Yeah, so I I got into the Spaceflight Field as a kind of early career faculty member and there was a proposal call that came out from NASA and I, I remember like just thinking like, there's no way I'll get it. Like, you know, I'm sort of a newbie in the NASA research and stuff. And like I was in my, I was in the first year of my faculty position and I was talking to somebody about it and they were like, well, you'll, you won't get it if you don't ever apply. And so, mm. so like, yeah, That's you're true. right. You know, <laughs> if you don't buy a ticket to the lottery, you're not going to win the lottery. So. <laughs> So I, have, I applied and, you know, I think it was sort of the perfect study for like the training that I had done and like medical image analysis and finite element modeling oh. to sort of take those tools and put them into solving a spaceflight problem. So this call was for, for proposals, was interested in, they were asking for tools or like a study to enroll astronauts and measure bone and muscle loss in their spine to better understand vertebral injury risk with spaceflight. The proposal that I submitted was to do, and this is a study that we're doing now, was to scan astronauts with CT and MRI pre- and post-flight before they go up to the space station for six months or more. And we scan them with MRI because that's good for measuring muscle, and we scan them with CT because that's good for measuring like bone mineral density. And then sort of the second aim of the study is to take what we measure and analyze from the medical images and map it to finite element models to make like astronaut specific versions of their anatomy.
0: (sighs) That is so cool.
2: Yeah. Pre-flight versions and post-flight versions. And then we. Put them, And we're using full human body models for this so that we can sort of tune the whole spine and all the musculature that supports it. And we can simulate then like landing events that are representative of what they might see when they're landing back on Earth and wow. predict what the risk of injury and how that changes with different levels of muscle dec- and bone deconditioning mm. that they experience with spaceflight.
0: Is that when they are at the most risk? I guess I didn't even think about that. I was thinking more like if they come right. back and then want to be involved in sports again or somebody like might have stress fractures or something like that. But it's the landing that they are at a risk for injury there too.
2: They're at risk for injury actually in both. I work a lot with the Occupant Protection Group at NASA and yeah, they're a big risk that NASA works in like risks. They, they map everything out in mm-hmm. risk. And, um, they're trying to work towards sort of minimizing those risks. But dynamic loads is sort of their big risk area. And so they're trying to minimize like the risk of injury from these big dynamic loads that occur during landing. And there are injuries that can happen during the landing event. But you're right, Melissa, that there are also injuries that happen in sort of the rehabilitation phase, like as they're in the weeks like following after they come back as they're learning to like walk and rehabilitate their muscles again. Mm-hmm. There's, I've heard of a lot of like disc herniation and kind of back mm-hmm. type Oof. injuries that, yeah, you know, we're not really studying that in this study. Like we're sort of focusing on the landing event, not the, the rehab phase of it. Yeah. It's
0: interesting that you say that too, though, because like, I guess I think more about the bones in the legs or for some reason. I don't know what why it's because like like yeah. Yeah, stress injuries, <laughs> like shins splints, that sort of thing. But in your study, you recently published an article that was actually on trunk muscle atrophy. And so there's also this risk that you're saying of herniating discs and the muscles in the trunk, which I, I just didn't – it wasn't the first thing that came to my mind, I think, when I think right. of muscles atrophying. Could you talk a little bit more about that? And also, I'm kind of curious, yeah, how you – do model these different muscles of the trunk and and what kind of changes are you seeing when you know when someone spends four months at the i s s
2: yeah <laughs> Yeah, this was a study that we did. We actually went back into some of the archive data that NASA had from prior space missions as we were sort of waiting for our subjects to get enrolled and like spend their time up on the space station and come back <laughs> down. We said, we're going to go back and like analyze some of the archive data. And so this was data from the era of spaceflight. It was like the early 2000s or so. And we had 16 crew members that had gotten CT scans and they had been scanned for a bone related study by another investigator. But in my, my work, like sort of working in the aging field, I was familiar with sarcopenia and like how it's assessed. Mm-hmm. And it's often assessed as more of like a whole body muscle measure or on mm-hmm. CT, they'll measure like the ring of muscle around the trunk or like your core muscles around your abdomen. Mm-hmm. And you know, we just thought, well, we could look at that in the astronauts and see like trunk muscle changes, because I don't think anybody's looked at that with CT and, and, and space flight specifically. And so we, we calculated these, the trunk muscle area, which is like the ring of muscle around your, your abdomen. And we also calculated a skeletal muscle index, which has some sarcopenia thresholds. So we could sort of see where the astronauts fell in the sarcopenia mm-hmm. range. And I should say that like sarcopenia is... A term that's kind of like the analog to osteoporosis, but it's for muscle. So it's like low muscle mass is, is termed sarcopenia. And what we saw was about five percent losses on average in this trunk muscle area and the skeletal muscle index with the wow. six months of spaceflight. And the interesting thing is that the co- kind of correlates or the analog to that, if you think about like terrestrial aging. That 5% loss is about a decade of aging here on Earth. For wow. Now. So it's much more rapid loss of this muscle tissue than you would normally see in the aging process.
1: And that's with training? Like they're training and, you know, trying to do load bearing things up in space?
2: That was not with as much of the training that they're doing now. So again, this okay. was like early 2000s. They, I don't think they had the treadmill up there and they definitely did not have the advanced resistive exercise device. I think they mm-hmm. might have had a okay. like, kind of interim device that, that did some resistance training, but what they've got up there now is much, much better, I think. Mm -hmm. And and we're not expecting to see like as dramatic of muscle loss in like our data set. That's where the astronauts are exercising with ARAD.
0: Even on earth now, I feel like core is paid more attention to now (laughs) training, training those core (laughs) muscles, because knowing that those muscles have a dramatic effect on the functioning Mm -hmm. of your entire body um, and other injuries. So
1: Yeah. (laughs) But it's just such a unique environment to study because you never think of like injuries usually so focused on like a a repeated motion or to one part of the body. But like this, like gravity affects the entire body equally. Right.
2: So, yeah. Yeah. It's a global problem. And, you know, I think the reality is too like even the resistive exercise devices like there's some muscle groups they probably target really well and like other ones that mm. are tough to target and <laughs> mm. those are probably the muscles that we're gonna see the bigger losses in are the ones that aren't as you know targeted with the resistive exercise device. Mm. We just have to figure out how to turn
1: gravity on up there periodically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> We're going to need that when we go to Mars, for sure.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Not if, when, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. I hope that you'll be involved in that, uh, that research. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I hope so, too. I, those those missions will be, I mean, a, you know, really a feat because the, the missions are close to three years long to get to Mars and wow. back. And, and so you can imagine, like, just the physiological hurdles that have to be be overcome for, to make that possible, not just to the musculoskeletal system, but, you know, there's radiation and cardiovascular effects and, you know, spaceflight wow. affects every part of the body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, definitely. They'll need a lot of different teams of researchers mm-hmm. working together on that, I'm sure. Do you do that in your in your work currently, work with other types of disciplines like mm-hmm. that, like understanding not just the musculoskeletal system, but like you're saying, cardiorespiratory and how they're influencing each other.
2: Yeah. I mean, I work more closely with, you know, the Occupant Protection Group at NASA. Um, I've had some interactions with like the suit and the anthropometry lab there, which they're working a lot with like, they're concerned about injury from landing, but they're also concerned about like EVA activities and those kinds of things. We're doing some work with like lunar missions, which predicting injury risks with those, but the problems are different, you know, cause you're landing in like one six G gravity and, and mm. the environment's different than landing back on earth. So I'm working mm. a little bit, you know, with different disciplines on that front, but yeah, I'm not really working with the cardiovascular groups or other groups. they like looking at other body systems. I just like have seen sort of presentations at conferences. There's a big NASA conference that happens every January or February. You see a lot of research in those areas. Yeah. Wow.
1: It's so funny. It just like you talking about this and like thinking about modeling these systems and integrating with all these different groups makes me think of in our dynamics class, like everything is set on Earth and like you learn how to do everything in like a Newtonian reference frame. But yeah, that doesn't necessarily apply. So how how do you deal with like handling all these different, I don't know, like rules and unknowns and things like that?
2: Yeah, we we make the best assumptions we can. <laughs> <laughs> validate our models to the extent that we can. So I have, I have one student that's got a, had a couple years of a NASA fellowship now to, to model lunar landing events, which, you know, are in one six G gravity. The, the, they think the lunar lander may be piloted in a standing posture like the Apollo missions were. And so he's working with um, actually a pedestrian human body model. Melissa, when you mentioned it, yes, right. <laughs> okay. if in that, yeah, okay. yeah, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> so it's a standing version of. We work a lot with the Global Human Body Models Consortium model (GHBMC), and there's a standing version of that. That's a pedestrian model, but yeah, you, know, you can use it for non-pedestrian impacts, like just you know, piloting a lunar lander on the moon, and and so. We've done some validation of that model in like spaceflight relevant environments. We've implemented active musculature now into that model so that we can better represent like the muscle activation as the person's like standing up. And there isn't like this abnormal slouching and stuff that occurs.
0: What does that mean to implement active musculature? And this is in the finite element model, right? Yeah. So it's like dynamic in changing the properties of the muscle throughout the simulation?
2: Yeah, the active musculature, it's beam elements. It's sort of like, if you know, like what an open sim model is, it's sort of like putting the open sim, like beam hill type muscle models into a finite element model. There's hundreds of these like muscles that, you know, he's implemented into this model, but the muscle activation piece means that you can you can tune the like area PCSA area of the muscle, which tells you like how much the muscle would contract. And you can also tune the response time of the muscle based off like neural delay. But the idea is that it, you know, is supposed to, if you've got all the tuning correct and stuff, it should represent sort of the standing activation musculature and mm. The way that muscles are defined is a lot of them use like angle measurements. So like if you want to maintain a certain knee angle, like you can prescribe that into the model and tell it like I want the knee to remain this angle and the muscles sort of contract and activate to maintain that knee angle in the course of the simulation.
0: That's really interesting.
1: Melissa, well, so I keep thinking about all the ways that we could use the SageMotion system for movement training through wearable haptic feedback.
0: Me too. It made me think about our in-lab interventions to improve gait symmetry for stroke patients and how awesome it would be if they could access that from their own homes.
1: Definitely. It is so portable, easy to use, and could be personalized for different people. It was so nice to hear from the team, too, directly in our personal demo.
0: Yeah, and our listeners can sign up for their own demo at SageMotion.com demo and write boom in the comment box... And then let us know your ideas for using it. Do you combine the finite element models with rigid body models? I'm curious, too, if when you're validating the models, is it with experiments that you're conducting? Or do you do a lot of, like, literature searches or kind of... The details behind those models.
2: Yeah, we. Uh, I mean, we use data that's out there in the literature if it's available. For this lunar stuff, we actually worked with NASA to get some test data that they had done. They have this Argos system there. It's like a rig that offloads the body so that they can kind of simulate mm-hmm. one-six g gravity. It's like a harness system that sort of lifts yep. you know, five sixths <laughs> of the weight off the person. <laughs> And so they had done some testing there, suited testing with a volunteer. And so we have some of that data to, it's a like a step off or jump off test. Like they're on a, a little platform, not very high, but the uh, the person sort of jumps or kind of steps off the platform and lands onto a force plate. And so we could look at like how well the forces in our model match the forces in that test. And there's also Vicon markers on the data that we could match it up with. Mm-hmm. And we had NASA also, like in this latest round of Argus testing that they did, they did an unsuited test for us so that we could, you know, also sort of validate the model against unsuited because the, the previous one was they had put these markers on the spacesuit, but, you know, obviously the spacesuit and the body move with each other, but not completely coupled there so we wanted to have both those sets of data to validate against.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. So this research looking at different exercises or re- resistance training and then you also talked about diets kind of with the theme around bone health. Have they influenced any of your exercise or
2: <laughs> exercise
0: routines or diets or anything that you've tried to implement in your life or to yeah, to support <laughs> your yeah. bone health?
2: Yeah, I will say that I like do a little bit more resistance training now than I used mm-hmm. to. I don't I don't do as much of it as I wish I should, as I probably <laughs> should, but I've always been more of a runner. Like I, I like to run, but you know, I think the cross training and supplementing that with resistance training is good. And I'm, you know, I'm in the demographic too, that's like going to be prone to get osteoporosis. I mean, you know, years down the line, I hope, I hope not, <laughs> not right <laughs> away, but female, you know, white Caucasian are like at most risk for osteo, developing osteoporosis later in life, and. Age 25 to sort of 30 or so is when your bone density peaks. So it's good to, I think, like achieve the top peak that you can get because it's going to Go down from there <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing the kind of things that like happen
0: around that I also heard that our personalities like kind of don't change after Whoa. our early 30s too so right. our like physical and yeah <laughs>
1: also, a lot of things
0: are, peak yeah, <laughs> 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 <soon>. yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we talked a little bit how I was part of this program at Wake Forest and you direct the Virginia Tech Wake Forest University School of Biomedical Engineering and Sciences graduate program, as well as the Wake Forest School of Medicine Biomedical Engineering Research Experience for Undergrads. And we're seeing that this summer you're advising two different projects in the Summer Research Experience for Undergrads program. And we are wondering if you could share a little bit more about what it's like to work or direct these programs and also what it's like to work with graduate students who are not just at Wake Forest, but coming in from different universities, what that experience is like.
2: Yeah, I'd say like this is where my passion really is. I I really enjoy being like director of these things, but also like working directly with the students and sort of training them. And I don't, I like kind of giving back, you know, because I it was such an instrumental experience for me, like to do a summer internship and really figure out what I wanted to do with my life. So mm-hmm. I really like to um, work with with students, and, and you know, whether that's them deciding like. They want to go to grad school, or maybe they decide they don't want to. Like, I think I think it's equally valuable, regardless of the outcome, to figure that out. You know, before you go and spend the next five years, you know, of your life doing graduate mm-hmm. research to know that what you want to do. But I feel like I've learned a lot from the students that I've personally worked with, and then just more of like working with the whole cohort too and and seeing it grow, the program grow over time. So when I was a summer student, like back in 2007, there was two students, like including myself, that were in like biomedical engineering. And our program cohort this past year was 31 REU students. And so, I mean, we've grown exponentially. And with that growth has come like an enhancement of the diversity and in so many ways, like, geographic diversity, like we recruit students and host them from all over the country, race and ethnicity. The, the cohort is much more diverse than it used to be. And we, mm. males and females, participate. But also like sort of the types of programs that students come in from, we do have a sort of focus on hosting students, at least a subset of students from colleges that don't have a lot of STEM research opportunities, like community colleges or smaller liberal arts schools that don't have big PhD engineering programs. And, you know, I think that's been great, like, and that enhances the different perspectives and, like, different skill sets that students bring in. But it also is challenging to sort of meet students where they're at because, You know, someone that comes in with like an engineering background that's done, you know, had all basic engineering courses versus someone from a smaller school that is more of a biology or health and exercise science background, the skill sets are very different. And it's not to say that like one's better than the other, but you need to make sure that you sort of meet the students where they're at and like that they are not thrown into something that they can't, you know, that they don't really have the training for and that you also capitalize on their strengths and stuff. And so... I think that we've gotten better at that. We've implemented individual development plans and provided more training mm-hmm. for the mentors on sort of how to, you know, set expectations at the start of the summer and have those conversations with with students. And I think the program as a whole has gotten better because of that, because we've sort of grown and matured and <laughs> changed over time.
1: Do you have any tips for Whether students who are in those programs or people that are directing programs like this, I'm interested in one like how you're building community, how you, you know, some strategies that you have found that are useful for meeting students. I guess you just noted like the mentoring piece. Yeah. Just like from your experience.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that we implemented uh, for the first time last year was a boot camp at the beginning of the summer. And that, I think, was like a good change. Some of the feedback, I mean, we survey the students every year and, like, we do change and adapt the program based off that feedback to try to make it better every year. <laughs> um, yeah. But one of the things that, like, we kept hearing was, you know, the students got a lot of, like, focal research training in, like, their project and their area, but they were interested to, like, learn more about, like, all the other projects. And, like, if they were doing imaging research, they wanted to, like, know a little bit more about the experimental biomechanics or computational biomechanics research. Mm-hmm. And so we're doing a boot camp now where we have it's like a half day, like for four days where we mm-hmm. give them like injury by or experimental biomechanics module. Like they might do some tours mm-hmm. and like get to talk with different researchers that are doing that. And then same for like computational biomechanics and Imaging. We also have them rotate through the patient simulation lab at our medical center where they get to work with like the mannequins and stuff. I think that that's been a good change in that it's not that anybody comes away like an expert in any of those things, but at least exposes Mm -hmm. them to what the different opportunities are. And then if their interest is sparked in a particular area, they at least sort of know who to go and talk to and connect with more over the summer, the course of the summer while they're here for 10 weeks to learn more, even if it's not the project that they're working on for their 10 weeks for their research experience. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, that's awesome because research, I feel like definitely as an undergrad, I was intimidated by and had no idea. You just don't know what you don't know. And so that exposure is so key to just get to experience all those different Things and also do that together in a community where there's other people that are you know also new and excited about it. Yeah, it's awesome.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We, we do try to do quite a few social events and we partner a lot with other so- summer programs here at our institution. Like we did an ice cream social last year. That was probably a hundred plus people. Cause we partnered with like <laughs> wow. four or five different <laughs> lots, of <ice> cream. <laughs> lots of ice cream. Yeah. yeah and we do a, a baseball game every year. Like we just buy a bunch of tickets to the local baseball team in Winston-Salem. And we do usually do that with the other summer programs too. And, People could bring their families, you know, and their their significant others and stuff, and so it it's fun just to sort of like socialize outside of the work setting.
0: That's so funny, because I remember all of these. And it's funny, the things that you end up remembering, like, I remember the community, I remember the baseball game, I think I still have this like random token that had just like a dumb joke on it that I got with the beer from the baseball game, which I don't know. why. (laughs) I just like to keep some random things that remind me. And like, it's funny to go back in the photos of that. And because it was undergraduate students from all over too, it, like, made it so special that like, we all lived in the same housing area. And then we would Mm. all kind of go into different areas for our research. But then we were learning from each other and all had different interests in where we wanted to go next, whether that was grad school or industry or medical school. And I've seen so many of people that were in that cohort in at conferences or just randomly visiting and knowing that we're in the same town and seeing each other again. So it's like those connections. Yeah. So I, yeah, I remember the baseball game. <laughs> I remember this food truck that would come and we would get peanut butter and jelly burgers from the... <laughs> <laughs> there's like a, there a lot of good food trucks in Winston-Salem that would come to Wake Forest. Yeah. there's,
2: <laughs> That's there's a good one. advertising right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's one now that does lobster rolls outside of our
0: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Might need to come yeah. back for a
1: Graduate
0: student awesome. are you. <laughs> rolls out <of> a truck. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's really, really good advice. What is the I'm also curious about the training for mentors and I'm I'm curious what that kind of looks like. I think it's one thing for us to have these experiences and, and learn from them and implementing feedback, but then teaching other people then how to be a good mentor. You're like mentoring the mentors on that. Yeah. Yeah, What does that sort of look like? What kind of training do they have? And what would you say is like the biggest piece of advice that you'd try to share with mentors?
2: The training that we've implemented last year was um, taught by an educator at the Winston-Salem State University, which is an HBCU in town. And so it was focused on culturally inclusive mentoring we talked about sort of different backgrounds, you know, that these students come in with and, you know, how their upbringing and stuff like, you know, may be different from one to the other and like having conversations with students about those things. A lot of it's kind of centered around like setting expectations and, and just sort of having open conversations up front and not assuming someone knows something or, you know, because a yeah. student that's done research before, like, you know, has some experience with the way things work, but like someone that's new at it and doesn't have a lot of that exposure to that at their institution, it's tough to know what they know and what they don't know. Yeah, it was more focused on like culturally inclusive mentoring. And I think we'll probably do another one. Like we met with our advisory board earlier this week and talked about like doing another training like that mm-hmm. and also doing one for the graduate students that like mentor the undergraduate students. And so I think we'll, we'll implement something like that this year where we'll train the faculty mentors, but the graduate students that like Melissa, you probably worked with some grad students too, like when you mm-hmm. were here, but you know, the grad students kind of mentor the undergrads a lot on the day to day basis. And mm-hmm. so we want to make sure that they're trained <laughs> too. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's so helpful.
0: I, I think even for us as graduate students, I don't know that we've ever had t- formal, formal mentoring. Tra- training yeah. on how to be a mentor. So it seems like it's, Also a great experience for the graduate students to have something formal like that over the summer to learn how to be a mentor and work with undergraduate students. Yeah, it's really cool.
1: And it's so easy to forget what it was like, like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, to not know anything. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I think that that type of training is like really translatable skill too. like, you know, Mm -hmm. if if you're going and you're getting a PhD, like you're probably going to be in a job where you're going to be managing and kind of a team of people. Definitely, if you go into academia, you're going to need to do that to manage a lab. Mm -hmm. But even in industry, like if you have a, a higher level degree of PhD or a master's degree, like at some point you're probably gonna be managing other people. And so it's it's good to pick up those skills because that's the kind of thing they don't always teach you in school. You
0: know? Right. <laughs> they and don't like, yeah, yeah. It's been a lot of like, Oh, you learn from experience. And it's like, well, there actually are skills and things you can learn but, yeah. to make it better. And it doesn't necessarily just have to come from yeah, just starting from a blank slate slate and right. learning from experience. There are things that you can you can learn. And I like your point that it can be translated to not just mentoring undergraduate students, but managing any, any people in your life and building those relationships. So,
1: yeah. Well, I think we're, we could talk about, you know, all these different topics forever, but we're nearing, nearing the end of our time. So I think we're going to try to do our last few questions here Two, We always love to ask. And the first I'll ask is, can you tell us about a time where you failed or felt like you failed and what you learned from it, um, what opportunities came from it?
2: Yeah. So I, I would say that kind of an overarching theme of failure that I still struggle with <laughs> is just not prioritizing my health and my wellness enough at like the expense mm-hmm. of my work. I'll tell you one example, like as a graduate student, I developed this condition called thoracic outlet syndrome that was causing all this pain down in my hands. Like every time I would work on the computer, and you know, I do computational research. So, oh no, this, no. this was a yes. big, big problem. Finally, we. Like through various doctor visits and stuff, figured out that I had cervical ribs, which is like an extra rib above my first rib. So like coming off C seven in my neck, Whoa. and that was compressing on my brachial plexus, which was sending like nerve pain down in my hands. And I went and like I saw a vascular surgeon. He was like, "Well, you could have surgery." On this, or you could try physical therapy for long. I mean, I'd been doing physical therapy for like a couple years and Mm -hmm. uh, before I finally went to the surgeon, and he was like, You could have this surgery. And I, there's this physician up at Johns Hopkins that does hundreds of these years, and she's the expert in it. But the surgery comes with a three month like recovery period. And to me, like that just seemed like a lifetime when I was a grad student. I was like, There's no way that (laughs) I can take three months off. And so I, I like pushed through the pain and just delayed it and delayed it. And I made myself like miserable. I mean, I would be in tears, like leaving work because I was in so much pain every day. And so eventually I did like go see the surgeon. Her name is Julie Freshlag and she was up at Hopkins at the time. And she... Took like one look at me. Like, I came in the exam room and she was like, You need surgery. Like, she could see some kind of like, like, I'm taking you in the back. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. She could see I'm like, We'll
2: see Aww. veins or something in my neck. But, oh like, my god! <laughs> but oh, I, yeah. but wow. it was just this like flood of relief because, you know, I just, I waited for so long and like I, w- I was kind of scared that she was going to say like I wasn't a candidate. And then I was like, I was really lost all hope. But yeah, I wish that I had prioritized my health earlier for that because I, I put myself through a lot of like misery and pain and sort of just delayed the the inevitable. You know, it was not a big deal. I had to take some time off like to recover, but like the world kept turning and it was fine. <laughs> mm. But the, the real irony in all of it is that about five, five years later, after I had the surgery, she came and is now CEO of our hospital system here at Lake Forest. So I, wow, I got to know her, you know, as a patient. Yeah. But she's, I mean, a very a fantastic surgeon, but also a fantastic organizational leader of our, our hospital system. But um, that's my big fail. But despite going through all that, I still struggle with trying to balance life and, and work and keep all the balls in the air. Yeah, I could imagine that that is going to resonate with a lot
0: of people. (laughs) I know it definitely resonates with me. And I think it's, yeah, this idea of also trying to put it off until you can't put it off any longer. And it's like, why do I wait until this like, yeah, until I'm literally can't go (laughs) any further. Do you have any advice or things that have worked for you? I know sometimes um, it's easier to give advice than like take your own advice, but I'm curious what your advice would be to people who face similar challenges and balancing and their health and prioritizing that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I'm getting better at like delegating. I think that that's a mm-hmm. big thing is just like trying to take stuff off your plate and give other people the opportunity to help you with it. I think like a lot, but I mean, it's tough to sort of relinquish that control and like really bestow responsibility on that other person. But that's the only way that I can like do everything that I'm doing is like to rely on my team mm-hmm. of, of people that help me. I try to, you know, exercise pretty regularly and, and eat well and, and sleep is a big, big thing. Yeah, yeah. we do. Yeah. We have to we sleep. Know that. Yeah. <laughs> It's usually yeah. the first to go though. <laughs> it is. Exactly. Yeah. It is. But it I don't know. Like if you're if you're well rested, I feel like you're able to take on the world a little bit. Like all the stresses and stuff are a little bit easier to cope with. <laughs> for sure. Definitely. For sure.
1: Well, thanks for sharing those tips. And um <laughs> <laughs> I- <laughs> I was going to I was going to say we like I feel like we did a whole series on wellness and still like sometimes I'm like yes, yeah. struggling to yeah. maintain.
2: Yeah, it's oh. tough. I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of a perfectionist and an achiever personality and mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it's really hard for me to let things go that especially if I feel like I'm letting other people down, you know, that like someone mm, yeah. needs something for me at work, like a student needs me to to do something. Like I I don't want to tell them no. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's such an important point too. I totally, I, yeah, (laughs) I can relate. So we've talked about so many amazing projects that you're working on. It was really exciting and inspiring for us. We're curious our, well, I guess before we ask our last question, actually first, if people wanted to learn more about you and your work, what's the best way to do that?
2: Yeah, so I'm I'm on Twitter at Ashley A Weaver. I'm also on LinkedIn. I am trying to get better at posting some of our success stories and stuff on Twitter, like mm. su- successes of my students especially, but putting some of our publications and stuff out there as they they get You know, out there. So, those are probably the two best social media places to follow me. And then I I go to a fair number of conferences. I go to this NASA one, the HRP meeting, and Ohio State University Injury Biomechanics Symposium, and ASBMR, which is a bone and muscle meeting, BMES, which you guys probably know about BMES. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And then AAAM is an automotive one. And so, you can see some of my work and work with my students at those conferences too. Very cool.
0: We love conferences. I miss yeah. them. I miss in-person conferences so, so much. I can't even describe. Yep.
1: Um, <laughs> me too. We'll be back someday. <laughs> yes, someday. Yes. yes,
0: yes. <laughs> yeah, so, well, as I was saying, uh, your work has been really inspiring through the whole episode. And we're curious with our final question about what you're most excited about for the future of biomechanics.
2: Yeah, I'm really excited about just the potential to sort of personalize biomechanics more. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in taking medical imaging and like making models more biofidelic and more personalized to be able to predict injury and and different conditions in people. And I'm pretty excited about the AI and machine learning that's coming out. Like I I think that'll make it more feasible and more efficient to analyze medical imaging and like do that personalization so that's that's probably the area that I'm I'm most excited about
1: <laughs> I mean that is going to be huge and it's really a fun time to be in biomechanics because I think we're converging between so many different fields and the advancements mm-hmm. that have been made in so many different yeah. fields And thank you for sharing your exciting and impactful work. You're having such a broad and great reach in so many areas. And it's been so fun to hear your stories and just, yeah, get to meet you.
2: Yeah, it was nice to meet you or talk with you all too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much. It was great to see you. We really appreciate it. Yeah, right. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much to Ashley. That was an incredible interview. We appreciate her time on Boom. If you enjoyed the interview and learned something from the episode, please let us know and share it with someone who you think might enjoy it too.
0: Before we wrap up the episode, let's talk about some research fails.
1: It was amazing because Melissa was like, oh, wait, I have one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this just reminded me of my time at – so I worked for Toyota and the CAE crash test group. And we got to see the crashes in real life in in the same building. And I remember my first time seeing a crash there. I was – just watching this car go, like a beautiful car that hasn't even been released yet, oh. right? Because it's like years ahead of they use it's new ca- release. Oh, yeah, duh. so they build a yeah. whole and everything needs to be in there, so it's like completely accurate to what's going to happen.
1: Like your lunch and your coffee. And-
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't eat while I'm driving, but <laughs> this beautiful car is just going full speed at oh. a wall, and you just watch it smash. And I remember just being so like freaked out about it. And there's this red light on the top of the vehicle that went off during the crash. And I, like, turned to the person next to <gasps> me and was like, what does that red light mean? And he was like, oh, it means that, like, the passengers didn't make it. And I was like,
2: what?
0: <laughs> like, let me just start crying now. I mean, this is, like, my first day there. And then they're like, just kidding. It's just what happens at, like, oh crashes. <laughs> Like, it always goes off. And I was like, okay, not wow. funny. Like, that is – Wow. <laughs> so that really freaked me out. I think I remember too, like learning this technology and the learning curve to computational modeling, like some days just being like totally <laughs> overwhelmed by it. But at the end, it was really cool to be able to run simulations and change things. And part of the spot weld configuration and like the 20... I wanna say like the twenty sixteen or twenty eighteen <laughs> Tacoma. Um I added that extra spot well wow. right in there. So your <laughs> Shout out to that. Yeah spot well. designed a little <laughs> butterfly brace for the A <laughs> pillars. Yeah, a lot of memories are stirred <laughs> stirred up from this one. But mostly good ones of all the awesome people that I worked with, which is always what we end up with. Always what we end anyway,
1: up with yeah. so. Biomechanics is human.
0: Yeah. Boom. And speaking of humans, this podcast wouldn't happen without all the amazing humans that work with us and support the podcast. So it's true. Let's thank them all. Let's thank them all. Let's we'll start with you.
2: Thank you for you, listening. Who's
0: listening? Yeah, we're talking to you.
1: <laughs> and your name you. is Daniel Grindle, a special thank <laughs> <Especially. laughs> <angel. laughs> you. Yeah.
0: Thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics and the Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory for their support.
1: And a big thank you to Peter Washington for all of the music that you hear and fun sounds. Yes. And if you'd like to
0: submit a research fail, a person to interview or get involved in any way, feel free to email us at biomechanicsonourminds at com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and LinkedIn at Biomechanics OOM, or you can contact us through our new website. And make sure to check out Boom on YouTube now. You can watch the Boom BoomTube. <laughs> if you want to listen to this episode again, you can go back and watch it <laughs> on YouTube.
1: Well, I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. Biomechanics, Biomechanics Off Our, our minds.
2: minds. Boom, 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 boom. boom.